sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. It is completely true. And it is given because the triune God of love loves us. You may be seated. Well, we're asking the question. Here's the question we're posing to ourselves as we go through the second half of Mark's gospel chapters 9 through 16. That question is, what did Jesus come to do? What did Jesus come to accomplish? What was his, if the first half of the gospel was all about who is Jesus? What is his identity? The second half of the gospel is what did he come to do? What did he come to accomplish? What is he all about? Share a couple of illustrations just as we introduce uh, the nature of this text. One of Evie's and my favorite movies, a little dated, we're getting older now, but it comes on TV from time to time if you want to watch it. It's called Mr. Holland's Opus. Anybody ever see Mr. Holland's Opus? Okay. So some of you are familiar with it. Some are not. It's okay. All right. Let me tell you. It's okay if you're not. I'm going to fill you in here. Here's what Mr. Holland's Opus is about. It's the story of a high school teacher. Three guesses what his name is. Mr. Holland. His dream is to write this great opus, this thing, and it's the story of him and his family through the years as he teaches at this high school. And at one point in the movie, they're at a parade. It's more than likely the 4th of July, and Mr. Holland is leading the band as they come through the parade, and you've got all your typical parade stuff. Bands and fire trucks and honking cars, lots of lots of celebration, lots of lots of noise. And they have a young son, his name's Cole, and Cole's maybe at this point three, four years old or very young. And they notice that he is oblivious. He's sound asleep, oblivious to all the noise, all the celebration, everything going on, and they come to discover he's deaf. He cannot hear a thing. So that even though he is at the parade, he is not able to truly experience what is going on around him. In other words, he's there, but he can't comprehend the significance of what is happening all around him. Let me take another illustration from popular culture. One of Evie's and I's other TV shows we like is the show Everybody Loves Raymond. Okay, I don't know if it reminds me of my family or not or whatever, but we love the show. Everybody loves Raymond. There's one episode where Ray looks at Deborah. Deborah was going to do something probably with his mom and dad, and Ray looks at Deborah and says, Deborah, you're on the train tracks, but you're not hearing the woo-woo. I got to admit, there are many times Evie looks at me and she goes, Jeff, you're on the train tracks, and you're not hearing the (laughs) woo-woo. 
You know, it's kind of like, you're there, you're standing there, here comes the train, and you're not paying attention. May I suggest this is what it was like for the crowds, the Jewish leadership, probably even the disciples, as they gathered for Jesus' what is it called? His triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They're at the parade, a literal parade that he comes in on his coronation animal, that he comes in on his colt. They're at the parade, but they're blind to the significance. They don't understand the significance of what they're experiencing. Here comes their king, and I titled the sermon, True Royalty. Their king is coming, but they truly do not get it. And of course, the obvious question is, do we? We're at the parade. Look at you. You're all still paying attention. You're here at church. You might be super spiritual people, and you go to small group. You might be knocking it out of the park. You do church. You do small group. You do discipleship hour. Wow. So you are doing all of these things. You're at the parade. You're participating in the noise. You hear it all. Do you understand the significance of what is going on? This passage from Mark's gospel is all about the authority, the preeminence of Jesus. It's about the entrance and the exercise of Jesus' preeminent sovereign authority, his kingly authority, true royalty. And we're going to look at this text from two perspectives this morning. We're going to look, first of all, at how easily authority is misunderstood, how easily it's missed. There's a lesson in that for us. Do we miss it? And secondly, what is the purpose of Jesus' kingly authority? What is its true purpose that I can say I understand why he entered Jerusalem, what his purpose is all about? First of all, how easy it is to misunderstand Jesus' kingly authority. Commentators remind us, just to give you a little context here, that the context of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, in a sense it marks the beginning of the end. First of all, it marks the beginning of the end of his avoiding crowds, something commentators call the messianic secret, where it's like, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone, keep this secret, don't tell anyone. Now he's kind of like out in the open, and especially open confrontation with his opponents, especially as we see as we go through these next few chapters in the Gospel of Mark, many of the episodes take place in the temple. Even at the very end of this passage, Jesus enters Jerusalem, he's there, And kind of at the end of the day, verse 11, if you look down at verse 11, it's at the end of the day, it says late in the day, it's before he leaves, where does he go? He goes to the temple, and he's kind of, doesn't say what he's doing, but it's saying he's looking around at everything. Many of the episodes that are going to take place are in or around the, of the temple, and this is day one of his Passion Week, and it begins with the crowds greeting his dramatic arrival on a cult, a cult that's never been ridden, a cult that's never been sat upon with cheers as they hail, as they shout the coming of David's kingdom. Listen to the text if you look with me at verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and you will send it back here immediately. What we see here is the Lord is nearing the city of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which geographically is east of Jerusalem. He's coming in from Bethany, from Bethpage, and what is he doing? He is exercising his authority, first by directing his disciples to go and get a cult. What is he doing? He shows his complete and direct foreknowledge. 
He is exercising his sovereignty. He is exercising his authority, his sovereignty over the entire situation by telling them precisely where they're going to go, what they're going to find, what they're going to be told, who's going to challenge them, and how they are to respond. Everything is completely in his hands. Nothing catches Jesus off guard. There's an application in, there in this for us. The application is not to fear. Jesus has everything in his hands. Everything is under his control. Nothing catches him, even our sin, even the bad things that happen to us, nothing catches him off guard. Nothing catches him by surprise. Everything is completely in his hands. He is exercising complete and total control over the situation. One commentator put it this way, writing about this, a man by the name of David Garland says, Jesus here is orchestrating a grand entrance into Jerusalem, an entrance that departs significantly from his previous patterns of movement in the Gospel of Mark. Everywhere so far in his ministry he has walked except the one time he crossed the lake by boat. The decision to complete... to. The decision here is to complete this last stage. Remember I said this is the beginning of the end. We are now entering into the final stage of the gospel. And this decision to complete this last stage of his journey to Jerusalem, riding on an animal, looks like and actually is a claim to authority. The animal he chooses has never been ridden, which makes it suitable for a sacred purpose and worthy of a king. Now look at what happens next. The scene continues, picking up at verse 4. They went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. They went away and found, huh, notice this, exactly what Jesus said they would find, they would find, down to the detail. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? Once again, exactly how Jesus said they would be challenged, they're being challenged. And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches. And the Gospel of John tells us these are palm branches, which is very, very important, that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The text tells us that many spread their cloaks on the road. The Gospel of John tells us that it was a great crowd that was there. The great crowd that had come for the feast, the feast of tabernacle, the feast, excuse me, of unleavened bread that is celebrated at the time of the Passover. Because here's this first day of Passion Week, and it is also the time of Passover. Now, understand historically that attendance at Passover was required for every Jewish person. That since the reign of King Josiah in the Old Testament, it was required that people would travel to the central sanctuary in Jerusalem. So rather, at the Feast of the Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, instead of staying in their local village, their local community, they were required to go to the central temple, the central sanctuary, the meeting place where you meet with God, and they were required to do this. In and around A.D. 64 or 65, the Jewish historian... Josephus recorded that attendance at Passover in those yearly periods was about 2.7 million. So if you picture that, and I'm not saying it was that many, we don't know how many, 
but it's quite possible that there were upwards of two million pilgrims thronging the city out of requirement at the Jewish Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, to come at this time. The text in Mark tells us that they that went and took leafy branches, as I mentioned, the Gospel of John indicates that they were palm branches. Now, what is the significance of the palm branches? Why palm branches? I'm dependent here. I want to acknowledge two historical sources. One is R.C. Sproul, and one is our own Bob Fullerton. For those of you who don't know Bob Fullerton, he's part of our church family, and he's a former Presbyterian minister. And years ago, he gave me his notes on the history of all this, and it's actually quite fascinating. And I want to share a little bit with that with you. During the period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, known as the intertestamental period, something took place that would absolutely define Jewish, the Jewish people in terms especially of their national identity for centuries to come. See, what happened was in the second century BC, the temple, remember where we are in biblical history, this would have been the temple that after the Israelites were in exile, You had the decree of King Cyrus of Persia. They were allowed to go back and they rebuilt the temple. Well, during this intertestamental period, there was a man, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. He was the leader of the Seleucid Empire. And he completely ruined and desecrated the temple. And obviously, it led the Jewish people to revolt. There were many revolutions, many revolts, and there was a Jewish man, his name was Mattathias, and he was determined to rescue the temple and the nation. He became the leader of a guerrilla group, that which fought against the Seleucids and their empire. When Mattathias died, the leadership, the baton, so to speak, was passed to his son, Judas, who became known as Judas Maccabeus. And under the leadership of Judas Maccabeus in 164 BC, the temple was rescued for the Jewish people to practice their faith. This event became commemorated and celebrated with a new annual feast. The feast was called the Feast of Dedication, also known as the Feast of Lights. Practiced today by Jewish people, it'll be practiced in several weeks. It's known as Hanukkah. Later, Judas's brother Simon Maccabeus drove the Seleucids out of Jerusalem altogether, and that event was celebrated with a parade to just try to bridge the context here and think think about a World Series parade, a Super Bowl parade, okay? They drove everybody out and it was celebrated with a parade. The palm branch, and this is very important, the palm branch became a symbol of military victory or national triumph. Bob says, and he learned from a man by the name of Jim Fleming, and as I said, I appreciate his giving me his notes on this. He says, the nation... When they were conquered, he says, if our nation was conquered by a foreign power and troops were watching our every move, so we lost our freedom, our once beloved freedom, and he says, say we would somehow celebrate the 4th of July, what might we do to commemorate freedom that was lost, freedom that we wished we had? He said, we might celebrate, we might ring liberty bells, for instance, because it's a symbol of national freedom. He makes the point, he says, this was one of the few times in Jewish history, we're talking now the century between basically 164 B.C. and 63 B.C. 63 B.C. was when the Romans conquered. For about 100 years until the Romans took over, the Jewish people were politically free. There was finally nobody 
subjugating them and putting them, no more Egypt, no more Babylon. And so one of the things they were allowed to do with their political freedom was to mint coins. And so one of these coins contains a picture of a palm branch. So here comes Jesus, and here's the point of this. The crowd thinking, here comes our king. Here comes the fulfillment of prophecy. Here comes the fulfillment of hopes and dreams. Here's our great sense of expectancy. Here's our great sense of anticipation. Jesus, note this, Jesus doesn't deny this. Notice when Jesus comes in on the cult, he doesn't say, oh, time out, you're misunderstanding my authority. Oh, stand down, stand down. There's no discouraging of this. It's all going on, and they're meeting them, waving palm branches, signifying their national freedom. The text says those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. The word means save now. That's what the word Hosanna means. It means save now. It is actually a literal meaning coming from what is known as the Hallel and a group of psalms in Psalm 113 to 118 called the Hallel Psalms that would be sung every morning of the feast. Now, every Jewish pilgrim, maybe upwards of two million people, would be familiar with this story. This is their history. This is their shared story. And so obviously, they'd be filled with incredible hope and anticipation. They're shouting. They're waving palm branches. They're showing Jesus their support. They're risking their lives before the Romans. Who cares if the Romans comes? Here comes Jesus. He's going to take over. And what does he do? Absolutely nothing. He doesn't do anything. And I love how Bob puts in his, his notes. I've got to give credit where credit's due here. He says, in their thinking... It was the cruelest act that one could perform to raise their hopes only to dash them to pieces. But see, what was Jesus doing? They expected to be saved from Rome. Jesus knew they needed to be saved from something far deeper. How easy is it for us to miss the true purpose of Jesus' authority? See, look at what the purpose of Jesus' kingly authority really is. David Garland writes, he says, Ironically, Jesus enters the city from the Mount of Olives with the Hallel ringing in his ears. Hosanna! Here comes the coming kingdom of our father David. He says he will later depart for the very same Mount of Olives to pray in torment after he and his disciples have sung a hymn, quite possibly a Hallel song at the close of the Last Supper. Remember my opening question. What I said for us to keep in mind as we go through the second half of Mark's gospel. What did Jesus come to do? What was his purpose? What was his mission? What was his agenda? He did not come to lead a military takeover. He did not come to lead a military coup. Yes, he came to defeat Israel's enemies, and he came to defeat our enemies. But our enemies and Israel's were not what we think they are. See, you know what we think our enemies are? We think our enemies are how life is going. Our health, our finances, our career, people not liking us, whatever it might be, those are our enemies. We don't realize, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn said in his address given at Harvard in 1978, that the problem strikes through right the middle of the human heart. You want to know what the chief enemy is? The chief enemy is us. 
We are the chief enemies, and Jesus came to deal with something far deeper than just political enemies. He came to deal with human sin. He came to deal with human selfishness. He came to defeat much deeper and darker forces than just our circumstances. See, why is he entering Jerusalem? Remember I said this is just the beginning of the end. It doesn't spell out explicitly here. There are still several chapters to go in the Gospel of Mark. The rest, the details of the story. But we need to understand what was the purpose of him coming to Jerusalem. What do we learn from the rest of the story? Garland again writes, he says, Roman guards will lead Jesus out of the city as a defeated captive. Consequently, Jesus does not share the disciples' earthly fantasies of glory. Remember James and John's question from earlier? May we sit at your right and left when you're in triumph and glory? No, Jesus appears in the city as he had forewarned three times to suffer and to die, not to set up a rival kingdom to Caesar. He comes, yes, as a king who will be crowned, but crowned with a crown of thorns enthroned on a cross, and hailed as the chief of fools. His entrance points to a different kind of triumph than the one envisioned by the crowd. His is a resurrection triumph, one that will be more powerful than any Davidic monarchy and more far-reaching than the narrow borders of Israel or even the Roman Empire. See, look at what we learn here. Jesus does not ride in in a royal steed. Jesus is not coming on a charger or on a Clydesdale. Here I come, hail to the chief, hail to me. He doesn't come. No, he comes, we learn, on a colt that has never been ridden before, that has never even been sat upon. And R.C. Sproul tells us that in the Holy Land, donkeys are not like they are here in the U.S., that they're much smaller. Grown men would have to bend their knees as they ride so their feet wouldn't drag on the ground. So instead of Jesus clinging to his privileges, clinging to his rights, clinging to everything he has, instead of him riding in royal style, what does he do? He self-consciously gives up his privileges, lays down his glory, and he identifies with the prophecy of Zechariah 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He enters Jerusalem on a lowly donkey. Not quite the picture the people, as they were waving their palm branches, had in mind. See, this king comes in lowliness, meekness, and humility. And one of the things that we have to recognize here, this is kind of in the way of application, is that Jesus did fail at something. He failed to give the people what they wanted. They wanted military coup, defeat the Romans, send the Romans, take over, revolution. That's what they want. Jesus didn't give them what they want so he could give them what they need. You understand that's still how he works today? He doesn't always give us what we want, but he always gives us what we need. See, he goes much deeper to what they truly needed. See, we come to Jesus and we think we know what we want. We want healing. We want power. We want peace. We want joy. We want career. 
We want finances. We want relationships. We want reputation. We want validation. We want to prove ourselves. Jesus says, you're not going deep enough. You need to go much deeper. I've come to give you what you most desperately need, which is forgiveness, love, salvation from sin. See, the only way for our hearts to truly be healed is to be forgiven in love. And only Jesus, and only through the gospel, can you get what your heart most desperately needs. Do you recognize the purpose of Jesus' kingly authority? That your deepest need is to be forgiven. That that is your greatest need. Is to be loved. To be free from having to prove yourself Why? Because he did it all. Through the performance of another, through the performance of him, you are free from ever having to perform. You are free from ever having to prove yourself. We ought to be so thankful that God does not grant us our wish to be our own savior. To have life work out exactly the way we've scripted it, the way that we think it should be but instead gives us our truest, deepest need, which is Christ, which is his love, which is forgiveness. That's what he came into Jerusalem to do. That's what he enters into the city. Not to give us what we want, but to give us what we need. Lord, may we recognize this and apply this to our hearts and recognize so often our hearts, in a sense, get lost in the fog, get lost in the the chaos, the turmoil of We always want what we want. We misunderstand your authority. We misunderstand how you exercise that. May we come to see how you exercise your kingly authority and the giving of your own life, the laying down of your own privileges so that through your performance, through what you have done, we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to validate ourselves. We're loved, forgiven, and accepted. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.